Welcome, and thanks for joining us at the Central Baptist Church Victoria podcast. In this series, we discover that God has provided everything we need for life and godliness. Based in 2 Peter 1, we will explore God's invitation to participate in His divine nature and ways that we can cultivate a fullness of life. Here's today's message. The scripture reading is 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 11. Please turn to 2 Peter 1 in your Bible or follow along on the sermon notes, handout, or the words on the screen. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 11. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble." And you will receive a rich welcome into the kingdom, the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you so much, Al, and and music team for leading us this morning, and Tina. Uh, In case we haven't met, my name is Phil Horton, and I'm one of the pastors here. I'd love to meet you. If we haven't met, uh, delighted to see you here with us this morning. And if you're watching online, thank you for joining us as well, or perhaps watching it later Uh, We're in the middle of a series that we're calling Everything We Need, and it's rooted in the text which we just read. Acts 24. The 24th chapter of Acts is is in the New Testament section of the Bible and tells the story of the Apostle Paul when he's in custody in a city called Caesarea. Paul has been sent to Caesarea from Jerusalem where he was arrested for his own protection from some radical Jewish religious leaders who really wanted him dead. Well, in the city of Caesarea, we find the Apostle Paul under the custody of a Roman governor by the name of Felix. Felix, we discover, is a bit of a snake. He's slippery, and he seems to have no one else's interest at heart but his own. But Felix is married to a Jewish lady named Drusilla, And Felix has shown quite a lot of keen interest in the development of the early Christian movement, which at this time was called the Way. Well, the first hearing before Felix is over. Now there's a lull in the proceedings while they wait for the arrival of the Roman commander from from Jerusalem, who's going to come and give his version of the events before Felix makes his final judgment. So in this downtime, this lull time, Felix 
we imagine getting a little bit bored. He wants some entertainment. So he invites Paul to come and speak with him and his wife, Drusilla. And this is how their conversation goes. Acts 24, we're going to break in in the middle of verse 24. It says, he, that's Felix, sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul spoke about, talked about righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I'll send for you. Here's what I want to notice from this story. Felix is afraid. He's afraid because sandwiched between these ideas of righteousness and judgment to come, Paul has the audacity to speak about self-control. Okay, here's a probing question for us. And I invite you to answer this question in your heart with complete honesty. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. How many of us can relate to this reaction of fear when we understand that the topic of conversation is going to be self-control? Okay, honest confession. A couple of months ago, as Scott and I were setting up the preaching schedule for the summer and working through this preaching series and planning, the first draft of the schedule showed that this particular Sunday with this terrible topic of self-control was going to be under Scott's domain. But then, to my horror, plans changed, and here I am with the topic of self-control before us. Why are we so afraid of the topic of self-control? Well, let me not speak for you. Let me speak for myself. I would say that the term self-control represents something I wish I had more of. It's, it can be a guilt-inducing term. Because it brings to mind many things, many times, things I have done, said, or thought which are things which I wish I had not done, said, or thought. And so it's easy for a preacher to help people feel guilty when they talk about self-control. But can I also say to you that the exercise of facing this topic rather head-on in the last week or so as I've been preparing this message in, uh, from Second Peter chapter 1... Let me just say this has been very helpful for me, in fact, encouraging for me. And so my prayer is that you and I may both go from this place, not full of guilt, but full of hope and full of courage. So let me begin, as has been our custom at the very top of our passage, so would you please, as we were in the habit of doing sometime through this series, please repeat after me the first verse of our series of verses goes like this and listen to the encouraging message right off the top. His divine power. Let's try that again. You weren't quite ready. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. Through our knowledge of him 
who called us by his own glory and goodness. Amazing, right? Amazing. Okay, with these words firmly in our minds, this is Peter's challenge for us today. In verse 5, he says to us, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, which we talked about a couple weeks ago, knowledge, which we spoke of last week, and then self-control. Okay, let's use this as a roadmap for our conversation this morning. I have four points. Sadly, they do not all have the same first letter. But let's talk about, first of all, the definition of self-control, and then the problem with self-control, and then the history of the idea of self-control, and then finally the the place and the practice of self-control. All right? So the definition, the problem, the history, and then finally, what I hope will be a very practical section is the place and the practice of self-control. Let's talk first place then about the definition. As usual, a few synonyms may help us to discover what the meaning of this Greek word is that, that Peter uses here. We're going to use two old words, which we don't often use, but the first one is temperance. So a synonym of self-control may be temperance. What is temperance? Well, temperance, we often understand it as not drinking alcohol to excess. Right? That's we would say that's temperance. So it's choosing to control your appetite instead of having your appetite control you. Right? Self-control. Often, uh, sometimes can be thought of as self-restraint. Another word which we almost never use but comes up as a, as a synonym is the word continence. Well, we sometimes use the opposite, don't we? Incontinence refers to when we have times when we cannot control our bodily functions, which we'll speak no more about. But continence then is this idea of control again, right? Controlling our bodily not just bodily functions, but our, our whole person. We're in control of our appetites rather than our appetites being in control of us. 1 Corinthians 9 verse 25 uses a slightly different form of the same word to describe athletes. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, everyone who competes in the games, and we think of the games in the Roman Empire days, uh, NIV translates it, goes into strict training, But really what Paul is saying here is everyone who competes in the games uses self-control, right? So it's choosing to eat food which is beneficial for me instead of binging on junk food. It's choosing to spend an hour working out and building up my muscles instead of binging on the latest TV shows, right? Self-control. It's also helped maybe, maybe to help us understand it better is to think about the antonym or the opposite word. There's a Greek word that is the antonym of this Greek word for self-control. And there's a helpful resource called Robertson's Word Pictures that suggests that this antonym word speaks of those who are overreachers. Overreachers or those who are avarice for more and more. 
What does that mean? It simply means extreme greed, right? Extreme greed for wealth, extreme greed for material gain, extreme greed for whatever. And in fact, most often when the biblical writers are, are translating, at least the, in, the, in the English translations, when they're translating this antonym of self-control, the word that's often used is the word greedy. In summary then, let's consider the definition proposed to us by Wikipedia. Wikipedia suggests that self-control is the ability to regulate one's emotions, thoughts, and behavior in the face of temptations and impulses. Well, as we look at these words, let's be clear in our thinking that self-control actually relates to every aspect of our lives. It refers to what and how much we eat. It refers to what and how much we drink. It refers to what we choose to read, what we choose to watch, what we think about, what we do when we're all alone in private, what we do in public, what we wear, how we behave, how we drive our cars, how we express our anger frustration and disappointment and let's be careful to notice the word how in there it's not that we should never express anger frustration and disappointment but it's how right so self-control says we're we're controlling those emotions and expressing them rather than being overwhelmed and being controlled by those emotions so that it's uncontrolled anger or frustration Self-control expresses itself in how we relate to our spouses, our children, our co-workers, how we express ourselves in social media posts, and the list goes on and on. And Peter today is urging us and he's saying to us, make every effort to add to your faith self-control. So if that's what we consider as a definition, then let's turn and consider the problem. Well, quite simply, the problem is with self-control is that it's very hard. I'm guessing that many of us, if not most of us, wince a little bit as we think back over our lives to situations where we have acted with the opposite of self-control. How often, perhaps, do we feel like the Apostle Paul as he expresses his frustrations in Romans chapter 7 when he says, for, the, for I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. The Apostle Peter was with Jesus in the final hours before his arrest in the garden. And, the, and Peter, James, and John, they were supposed to pray, but they kept falling asleep. But listen to the, the words that Jesus says. And maybe Peter has some of these words in his mind as he's writing this in 2 Peter chapter 1 to us. Do you remember what Jesus said to them as he wakes them up and says, Watch and pray, my friends. Watch and pray, my friends, so that you will not fall into temptation. Why? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is what? The flesh is weak. The problem with self-control 
is that the more we fail to practice it, the more discouraged we become. And so by now you're thinking, okay, you said you were going to encourage us. All you've done is make me depressed so far. Well, before we make some encouraging observations about the place and the practice of self-control, I'd like to do a short history lesson with you. Let's think about the history of self-control. It may or may not surprise you to know that the New Testament writers were not the first ones to write about the value of self-control. In fact, at the time Peter is writing in the first century AD, around 60, 65 or so, we know that, the, that Greek philosophy, philosophy has been alive and well for a number of centuries, many centuries. And in the transition from the Greek Empire to the Roman Empire, the Roman philosophers have picked up and have modified some of these ideas that the Greek philosophers started and were developing some of their own schools of thought. And what most New Testament writers who were, who were commentators rather, who were, who were looking at this, this passage, especially from Second Peter, most New Testament commentators notice that Peter's writing here in Second Peter 1 is borrowing from a particular school of philosophy called Stoicism. So let me preface the following brief look at Stoicism by reminding us about a comment I made last week in the discussion about knowledge, because I believe that we have much to learn from the Stoics to the extent that they earnestly seek for truth in their observations about human behavior and how human life works. But we must also be very aware of where their philosophy rejects some aspects of how God has revealed himself in Holy Scripture. All right, so let's talk briefly about Stoicism. In the third century before Christ, a man by the name of Zeno, he lived on the island of Cyprus. Uh, he was a philosopher and influenced by the ones that went before him, Aristotle and others. He joined with a couple of other philosophers who had slightly different emphases in their philosophy, but together they developed this idea and this body of thought which came to be known as Stoicism or Stoic philosophy. Later on, their work in thinking, so this is like third century before Christ, right? Just in terms of timing. Their work in philosophy was later picked up by some of the early Roman philosophers. And there's some Romans then in the first century who begin to write in a very similar fashion. And so we have names like Marcus Aurelius, who was thought to be one of the most thoughtful and upright of the Roman emperors. He, his writing is considered to be some of the basic writings of Stoicism. Uh, another man by the name of Seneca, who you may have heard, who's as a philosopher and an advisor to a couple of different Roman emperors. There was also a man who was a slave in the Roman Empire, but he became free. And as a free man, he was a very bright guy and was a philosopher. And he wrote in the same school of thought. And his name was Epictetus. So all that to say that Stoicism is alive and well as Peter is writing these words that we're looking at in 2 Peter chapter 1. Well, in fact, if you look at it, Stoicism is still alive and well today. And there's many evangelists of Stoicism who would love to invite you to become a Stoic uh, in order that you can learn how to live well. So, for the sake of brevity, let me simply point out two things about Stoicism. First of all, I'd like to point out some of the basic beliefs of Stoicism uh, that we might find surprisingly agreeable. But secondly, I would like us to show some of their underlying ideas that do not line up with how God has revealed himself to us 
in the scriptures. So first of all then, uh, some basic ideas, basic beliefs of Stoicism. Stoicism can be epitomized by three essential beliefs. This is a summary by a man by the name of John Garrett, who wrote an article called What is Stoicism? on this website called thecollector.com. He says this, Stoicism can be epitomized by three essential beliefs. First, that virtue is sufficient for happiness. All right, now think about this with me. Virtue is what? Virtue is this idea of goodness, right? So the Stoics believe that if you can be a good person, that's all you need to be happy. You don't need a bigger bank account. You don't need a bigger car. You don't need even to have your health. You, you, you don't need anything else. If you have goodness, if you're a good person, then you can be happy. All right? That's their, their philosophy. The second one, that, the, that other so-called goods should be regarded with indifference. Right? So the things that you own should not control you, in other words, right? They, you should be indifferent. You got a new car, you got a new house, you got a new iPhone, you got uh, whatever it is. It, those things should not consume you. Those things should be regarded by indifference. Your highest value should be being a good person. Well, the third, perhaps surprisingly, uh, surprising to us, essential belief of Stoicism, according to John Garrett, is that the world is providentially ordered by God. Garrett goes on to say that the Stoics' greatest legacy is their ethics. The goal of ethics, they say, they used a Greek word in the old days called eudaimonia, which according to John Garrett is best translated, listen to this, as human flourishing. Now, if you've been here over the last few weeks, what have we said about this passage in 2 Peter 1? Peter is teaching us how to live a full life, right? How to, how to flourish as humans in relationship with God. So all of this so far sounds, sounds kind of okay, right? Well, let's carry on for a moment. Let's look briefly at the four virtues of Stoicism. This is from an, a, a website called thedailystoic.com, which is one of these evangelistic websites which will try to convince you to become a Stoic. But they say that the four virtues of Stoicism are courage, temperance, which is self-control, justice, and wisdom. The website goes on to say, in its rightful place, Stoicism is a tool in pursuit of self-mastery, of perseverance, and wisdom. Something one uses to live a great life. It's not simply an esoteric field of academic inquiry. Well, that's pretty interesting, right? So we could perhaps agree that these men from antiquity were good scientists in the field of human behavior. They figured out how humans worked and how human relationships worked. They did some research. They've come up with some very good suggestions about how we might live a full and flourishing life. This website also tries very hard to show that Stoicism works. And so they say, Stoicism, this is a claim that they make. Stoicism has been a common thread through some of history's greatest leaders. It has been practiced by kings, presidents, artists, writers, and entrepreneurs. And here's a list of names that they suggest. Marcus Aurelius, who we referred to already. Frederick the Great, Montaigne, 
George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Adam Smith, John Stuart Mill, Theodore Roosevelt, John, uh, General James Mattis, just to name a few. This website claims they were all influenced by Stoic philosophy. Okay, so that's on the good side of what the Stoics have said and discovered. But let's dig a little deeper to see some of the underlying presuppositions of Stoicism, especially in their ideas of relationship to God. We've seen that they believe that the world is ordered by God, but who is God to the Stoics? Well, we go back to John Garrett for this information. He says this, the ancient Stoics are pantheists. So they believe that the cosmos is identical with God. Therefore, everything in the universe, such as stones, trees, animals, humans, etc., are all parts of God. All right? I hope you have a problem with that. The, our, our scriptures begin, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? So I'm simply giving a summary statement of their belief, but it's very different from how God is portrayed in the story of the Bible. But further, again from John Garrett, unlike the God of the Abrahamic traditions, the Stoic God is not omnipotent. He does not hold all power in his hands. His power is limited by natural and logical possibility. Okay, so now we have to take exception to this. Clearly, this is not how we believe the God has revealed himself through Holy Scriptures. And so some questions are emerging here, okay? Stick with me here as I try to follow this through. Our Stoic friends have made some astute observations about human behavior and life. And historical examples seem to show that people who follow the teaching of Stoicism can become pretty good and pretty self-controlled people. So here's the question. Can we trust their findings even if they reject God as we have come to know him through the scripture? And why is it, we might ask, why is it that Peter seems to borrow some of these words from Stoic philosophy to bring into his text here? Has Peter been deceived by Stoicism? Well, let's turn the corner into our fourth point of conversation this morning. And let's talk about the, 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 the plan and the, the place and the practice of Stoicism. Here's what I want us to observe. As we look at the place and the practice of Stoicism, listen very carefully here. The practice of self-control in Stoicism and the practice of self-control in Christian faith has a very different context. And it's that context that we need to look at carefully. So let's look first of all and consider the place of these ethics in the writing of Peter as we're looking at it. So I invite you to look at this uh, next slide on the screen. You'll see a couple of words that are bigger than the others. This is basically the list that Peter is giving us in, in our text that we're going through, right? So everything's rooted in faith and everything is covered by love. All right, we're going to come back to that thought in a minute. But in between, there are these virtues, these qualities, as Peter's saying, make every effort to add to your faith these qualities. And some of these words are also commonly used in Stoicism. Now, let's look carefully. This is the context that Peter is using. All right, have you got that in mind? Now, let's go to the next slide and look at the context of Stoicism. Some of the same words but without the top and the bottom, right? Without the faith 
as a foundation and without love as the overwhelming and overwhelming uh, attribute. Stoicism gives some good suggestions about how to become good, how to become knowledgeable, how to be self-controlled, how to be godly even. They, they, they give us some very good steps. They say, okay, just take it one step at a time. When you fail, just, just look at someone who's done it well and follow them. Lots of good suggestions about how to do it. But the context here, what's the context? The context is simply trying harder to do these, these characteristics, right? And here's the thing. Humans are amazing creatures. We are all made in the image of God. And it's possible that we may have quite a lot of success in this context if we try hard. But let me show you the context makes all the difference in the world. Let's go back to the slide that we saw previously to see the full context. And let me read to you some words from a commentator uh, named Richard Bauckham. Richard Bauckham is a well-known New Testament commentator. He writes in the word biblical commentary on this passage. And I didn't put this, te this text on the screen, so I invite you to listen very closely to what Richard Bauckham says as we look at these words that are on the screen. The list of virtues, these ones on the screen, verses 5 to 7, is notable, he says, for the predominance of ethical terms drawn from Hellenistic moral philosophy. He's talking about Stoicism there, like virtue, self-control, godliness. But the whole list, listen very carefully, Bauckham says, this whole list is given a Christian definition by its first and last items. Faith and love, the only terms whose position in the list is significant. Christian faith, right, at the bottom. Christian faith is the root from which all of these virtues must grow. And Christian love is the crowning virtue to which all of the others must contribute. In a list of this kind, the last item has a unique significance. It's not just the most important virtue, but it's also the virtue which encompasses all of the others. Love is the overriding ethical principle from which many other virtues gain their meaning and validity. Thus, the author of 2 Peter sees that some of the ethical ideas of pagan society, namely the Stoic philosophy, should, be, should also be Christian ideals, but only, listen carefully now, only if they are subordinated to and reinterpreted, reinterpreted by the Christian ideal of love. That's a pretty complex quote. I didn't put it on the screen because of its length. If you would like me to email it to you so you can absorb it a bit more, I'd be very happy to share it with you. But let's step back now and just ask, what does this all mean for the practice of self-control? You, you might be saying, I might be saying, I've done a horrible job at self-control in this area or that area in the past. How does all this help me to do better? I want to suggest to you that what we observe in these two contexts that we've just looked at makes all the difference in the world. Perhaps an illustration will help us to visualize the difference. I have in my hand a balloon. My desire for this balloon is for it to experience fullness of flight. I don't want it to just lie on the floor. I want it to fly up in the air and explore the ceiling. I want it to be on top of the world. So question. If I were to, and I won't, 
But if I were to breathe from my own breath into this balloon, could this balloon experience what I want it to experience? Listen carefully, because I would say yes, but only what? Only with my helping it, right? I'm going to help it go up. When it comes down, I'm going to push it up again. Only with my constant effort, I can keep this thing in the air, right? So if it's my air that's going into it, I can do it, but it's going to require my constant self-effort. But what if... What if there was another source, another source of gas instead of this gas, right? What if, for example, there was a tank here and it had some helium in it? What if I was to go over here and fill this balloon with that? Would this balloon then do what I want it to do? Yes, but why? Because it's taking its power from a different source. My friends, there's no such thing as a completely perfect illustration but let me suggest to you that if you choose the pathway of stoicism to become a better person, it will always require this self-effort because that's all it relies on is my ability to choose the better choice. You may have some success, but my friends, you will miss out on the beauty of the message of the Bible. Peter is putting these qualities in a whole different context. And you remember what? This is the context. We said it before. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. And so once again, as we discovered when we talked about goodness, we discover and we, we, we make note of the fact that Peter is not saying to us today, make every effort to be more self-controlled. That's not what Peter's saying. What Peter's saying to us is make every effort to add to your faith self-control. Cultivate self-control in the soil of faith. And we've talked about what faith is. Faith, what we receive by faith is, is, is life as a gift from God, right? Through faith, we discover that by our own self-effort, we can never attain goodness of God, self-control enough to please God. We can never do it on our own strength because the Bible clearly tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us. And so that's why Jesus came. And at the center of the story of the Bible, that's why we have the story of redemption through Jesus. The only way we can have our relationship with God restored is not through our effort to do better at these things, but by receiving and believing the gift of salvation, the gift of redemption, the gift of forgiveness, the gift of free justification through Jesus. Our, our relationship with God is restored simply as a gift, not through our effort. This is the story of faith. But it's in that soil of faith, having received this gift, a free gift from God, that Peter says to us, in that soil of faith, that soil should grow up and it should look like goodness and knowledge and self-control. You should increase in self-control as your faith becomes more and more active, as your faith becomes more and more healthy. 
We need to remember that Jesus paid for everything. He forgives my sins. He adopts me fully as his child, not on the basis of my works, but on the basis of what he did. And so, like cultivating potatoes, as we looked at a couple weeks ago, or last week maybe, cultivating self-control in the soil of faith means that I don't simply try harder to be self-controlled, but that I make sure that I'm taking care that my faith is alive and active, and that I'm connected to the source of power. I'd like to ask the music team to come forward at this time. When we spoke about goodness a couple of weeks ago, we used this phrase. We suggested some very practical steps, are not, not so much using our own efforts to become good people, but rather to be, use our efforts to really be involved in three things. One was intentional worship. Intentional worship, taking time personally, taking time corporately to worship the God who saved us. Intentional meditation. We looked at Psalm 1 and we said, when you, when, you, when you meditate on the law, you become like this tree that's planted by streams of living water. It becomes flourishing, right? So we meditate on the word that God has given to us. And then it's intentional imitation, right? We seek to become like Jesus, who is the only human in the history of the world that displayed all of these qualities perfectly. My friends, there are many theories and philosophies about self-improvement in our world. And like Stoicism, some of them have truth embedded in them. But it seems to me that Peter is calling us not necessarily to ignore all those ideas of self-improvement or growing in maturity. In fact, he says, make every effort. But more importantly, what he's calling us to do is to never forget the context of our effort. We receive this gift we seek to become more healthy worshipers, more healthy imitators of Jesus. And as we do that, we seek to, to see these fruits grow up. Self-control is also listed in the fruits of the Spirit, right? As we become more and more like Jesus. I would like to say a final word. Um, some of us, whether whether we know it publicly or keeping, whether we're keeping it to ourselves or whether we're admitting it to others, some of us get caught in the trap of addiction, which is really an extreme form of the loss of self-control. And I just want to encourage each one of you who are perhaps facing some of those challenges in life to go deeper into God, to go deeper into worship, to go deeper into the meditation of Scripture, but also not to neglect the good Advice that you're given about being together, about not isolating yourself, about doing all those good steps. Because it's, it's finding the source of power that you really need. But you need these practices as well. And I think that's the balance Peter's giving us in this text. Make every effort. Add to your faith. Self-control. We want to take a moment to thank you for listening. And we invite you to join us on Sunday mornings in person or online. For more information about who we are and what's happening at the church, visit us online at centralbaptistchurch.ca. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Church Victoria podcast.